welcome back to another episode of the King's Bulls podcast presented by the King's Herald. My name is Brendan Nunez, and today I've got a close friend joining me as we continue our off-season recaps slash season previews. We got Adam Taylor, who covers the Boston Celtics for Celtics Blog, also does work with Heavy and House of Bounce. What's going on? Also, the reason that King's Pulse is named what it is, by the way. What's going on, Adam? How you doing, bro? What's popping, man? Thanks for having It's been a hot minute since we uh, we hopped on a podcast together. Uh, thanks for having me, dude. Of course, man. Thanks for doing it. Uh, this is our excuse to have you on a, on a King's podcast once a year, so I'm definitely glad to do it. I want to start with the playoff run that Boston just had last year because it was, you know, going to game six of the NBA finals is obviously no easy feat, but I think that there's two possible ways to kind of look at that run. You can look at it as, man, they were so close, or you could maybe a little bit more of a pessimistic view, if you want to call it that, say, hey, maybe they don't get out of the second round if Chris Middleton isn't there because no Chris Middleton, they still go to seven. Right. And then in game, they go to seven games against a really injured Miami team. Boston had their own injuries they were dealing with as well. But I'm curious, kind of like, where do you sit in that balance um, compared to like, you know, how close really were they last year? Yeah. I mean, and this is something that Celtics fans have discussed between themselves. It's something that they've had to deal with other people discussing and like discrediting that Celtics run. My outlook on it is very simple. No NBA champions didn't face a team with a few injuries along the way. You know, it's like saying, well, would the Lakers be champions if there was no NBA bubble? There's always a a way or a factor that you can point to that discredits a championship run. The Toronto championship, for sure. You see what I'm saying? And like, obviously, there's, there's outliers to that. Like, if it's the Warriors, like... You can try and discredit it, but it's like, dude, when you're winning as consistently as what they are, you kind of stop trying to discredit and you just appreciate them for as talented as what they are. Don't get me wrong. I'm not lying. If, if Chris Middleton was healthy, there's a very good chance Boston don't get through that second round because for as good as what the Celtics defense was, and I think they played Giannis as best as they could. I think Grant Williams was exceptional when tasked with guarding Giannis uh, throughout that entire series. The fact of the matter still remains that, yo, it's it's Giannis, right? And you've got Chris Middleton now, and the spacing opens up a bit more, and you can't clog the paint as easily because now there's a real like threat on the kickout. And um, Miami was different. I think Miami just Miami is a team that muddies it up, like they they just throw you into the trenches regardless of who's playing. Like it doesn't matter if Jimmy Butler's hurt. It doesn't they're just going to make life difficult? And I think that Boston. At full strength versus a full strength Miami team, I think Boston is still winning the seven. Milwaukee's that that asterisk, right? Um, and I think that, you know, I, I kind of just took it for what it is because would people be questioning whether Milwaukee should be in the NBA finals if Jalen Brown was there? Don't give me, like, if you look the season before when Boston got swept by Brooklyn, there was no Jalen Brown, but nobody was questioning that from a Brooklyn standpoint. Obviously, Brooklyn didn't go as deep, and that might be why. But there's always injury luck to be had and injury on luck type of thing, you know, injury circumstances that stop a team from being successful. For sure. And that makes a lot of sense for last year's run. I I think where it's interesting to me is like, how do you, what should the mindset in your mind or what should it have been going into the off season? You know, like, is it just like, okay, they were already right there. Let's run it back. They already have a championship caliber team or is it, you know, I, to me, like that's where this balance is tricky. Figuring out how much work exactly needs to be done in the off season compared to running it back. So, going into the off season, what were kind of the goals that you had in mind? Yeah. So for me, it was like the the biggest issue, not even just in the postseason, throughout the entire playoffs, was the bench. Not that they didn't have talent, but from like February onwards, Udoka had to go down to an eight man rotation because he just didn't have faith in anybody beyond that. There just wasn't enough offensive and defensive talent deep in that bench. And more importantly, during the early part of the season and in the playoffs as well, when Tatum or Brown, one of them or both of them were off the floor, everything stagnated. And that was when you saw those big swings in that Miami series, right? Where it was like, 
every game was a blowout. Miami a blowout, Boston, Boston a blowout, Miami. And what was happening was no matter how much of a lead Boston could build, when the bench unit came in and it was bent rotation minutes, everything started to freeze. It started to stagnate. So coming into the offseason, I had two, my personal like goals, wish list, was add some scoring, add some uh, additional like shot creation. I, I know everyone calls it playmaking, but I wanted shot creation, somebody that could create for themselves and create for others, and then start rounding out your bench with talent that you can rely on, whether if somebody's injured or if you want to run a 10-man rotation until the playoffs begin so you have some fresher legs. Yeah, and it seems like they kind of went and did that, right? I mean, the primary one I think of is obviously the the Malcolm Brogdon move, which was Daniel Tice, Aaron Neesmith, and Nick Stauskas, and uh, I don't have the pick in front of me. It was just one pick, right? Uh, yeah, so to just to correct that, that was Malik Fitz, not Nick Stauskas, if I remember got it. correctly. Got it, got it. Um, no, for sure. And Malcolm Brogdon is somebody that has a lot of time left on his... I'm sorry, he has an expiring. I'm thinking of Derek White there. Um, but Malcolm Brogdon has had some injury concerns. Like, kind of how do you feel about Brogdon being the main addition? So I think I was probably the guy that caused the most heat on social media when this happened. Because you know me, man. I'm vocal. I'll, I'll be honest with my opinion. And some people see that as being going against the grain just to go against the grain. But I was very – and if that was their opinion, that's completely fine. But um, my outlook on it was you already have Robert Williams that's a huge injury like um, concern. You know that you're going to go 15 games a season. You're not going to have Rob, if not more. Al Horford's probably not going to play back-to-backs this year. So now you have to start dealing with that within the rotation. You can guarantee Marcus Smart's going to miss games every year because of the style of play that he does. He's going to get banged up and need some rest. All of a sudden, you've just added in another dude that's pretty much guaranteed to miss around 15 to 20 games. So straight away, the how are you going to make this work rotation-wise? How are you going to get the continuity and the fluidity if there's always somebody out? That was a huge concern for me. But from a straight talent standpoint, when you've lost Aaron Neesmith, just it wasn't working for him in Boston. I think he's got a huge upside as a free and D wing. Um, but he wasn't getting the minutes. He was behind some legit players. So if you're just giving up Neesmith, Daniel Tice that doesn't fit the Ime Udoka style of basketball, and Malik Fitz, who, to be honest, was the best bench dude I've ever seen in my life. Never played a minute, but he was on the floor hyping. He was a hype man. You were basically paying a hype man to be the 15th man. I'm going to miss him. Um, but if that's all you're giving up to get back a genuine talent like Malcolm Brogdon that can play off ball, can play on ball, can create, can defend, you have to take that swing. And then, you know, if he misses 20 games, so be it. Yeah, you definitely have to. But you kind of mentioned something I wanted to ask you about, like, Brogdon falls into that Horford with his age Williams like you never know if if something could happen to Brown or Tatum God forbid like do you have concerns I think this is kind of what you were hinting at that like this depth is almost false in a way yeah so I wouldn't call it false but I definitely call it like choppy right like choppy waters and like there's going to be times where two of these guys maybe three of them are out and now you're relying on deep bench rotation, guys. And that's why I think at the moment, the Celtics have three open roster spots, technically. They've got a few guys on Exhibit 10 deals. I think Noah, Noah Van Lee signed a deal, but it was completely non-guaranteed. They can cut him at any time. So you've got three open roster spots. You need to, you need to knock that out of the park because of the, the amount of injury concern and game management concerns that you've got. Maybe Rob's knees flare up. He needs to let the swelling go down so he can't play. Maybe Al Horford needs a few days rest. Maybe Marcus Smart gets banged up. You know, he spoke mid-season. Do you remember when he hit the uh, the glass in, in Los Angeles? and that? So he's still got a shard of glass in his hand and it messes with him from time to time. Oh, shit. So, and like he was like, sometimes it flares up and, you know, I have to rest it for a day or two. <laughs> Like because there's glass in there from when I put glass in your hand probably isn't a good thing. Yeah, so you've got that to be concerned about. Uh, Through the playoffs, Jason Tatum revealed to Taylor Rooks earlier in the week that two months before the end of the season, he was diagnosed with a non-displaced fracture in his wrist, which means he's got a a chip in his bone, but the bone, the chip hasn't come away from the bone. It's just a fracture. 
He played the, the entire playoffs with a fractured wrist. And then he picked up a shoulder injury against Miami. So you've got to hope that both of those don't flare up or reoccur. Jalen Brown's going to miss time because he's for the rest of his career, he's going to have to deal with knee tendonitis. So when you're talking about your end of bench guys, you really need to knock that out of the park. If you just bring dudes in to bring dudes in, you could end up paying quite a sharp price for that during the regular And it'll only be the regular season, hopefully. But if you're a contending team, you want to be getting a home court seeding. So it could become, like, you know, down the line, it could become really important that your deep bench are talented enough to help you get some wins. For sure. And I feel like a lot of the guys that we'll be talking about at this point is, you know, just for regular season depth. Like you mentioned, that is important. So that way you're more well-rested going into the postseason because most postseason rosters and um, rotations are only you know, eight guys sort of thing, kind of like we saw with Boston. I think being able to add one more like Brogdon makes sense. Uh, One of the other, I guess the other big addition was Danilo Gallinari, who is at maybe even past the back end of his career at this point. Um, He's definitely a little bit older, doesn't move amazingly last year in Atlanta. But where are you at with the sort of, yeah, what expectations do you have for Gallinari? So I've just got him as a single skill stationary shooter at this point in his career. And I think that's perfectly fine because it directly fills a need in what the Celtics, like fills a hole in what the Celtics needed last season. Just somebody that can be a spot up threat that takes a bit of the attention away from Grant Williams to allow Grant to continue to score. So I'm complete. I'm really comfortable with that. I don't, I'm not expecting big things from him. I think he'll have a few games during the season where he goes off and by goes off, I mean 15 points. Yeah. Um, I think he'll have a couple of those, and there'll be times where he looks unplayable, and you don't see him on the floor for the entire, like the second, third, and fourth quarter. I'm very realistic there, but he gives you size, he gives you shooting, and the, one of the biggest issues for Boston last year was not enough three point shooting. They really struggled to space the floor for Tatum and Brown, and Tatum had evolved his game. He wanted to pressure the rim more. They were running a lot more elbow sets. They were getting the ball into the post more as well to run some post offense. So that spacing now becomes integral. And I think that Gallo is going to fill that void quite nicely. Yeah, there was a time last year where it felt like the Kings couldn't hit a shot or they'd have games often. They were so up and down. And I remember talking to you about it and you were like, man, don't even get me started. I looked into it. And I was like, holy shit, Boston shooting is so much worse than I thought it oh, was. Dude, it was so bad. So yeah. bad. And like Tatum had a notoriously slow start scoring the ball. Then uh, you know, I mean, the saving grace this season was Grant Williams turned into like prime Steph Curry from the from the corners. And he, how, and how many did he take in that Milwaukee game? I don't know. It was a like record, seventeen right? or something. Yeah, I think it was 18, 18 three point attempts, and he made a large portion of them. Um, like what the hell? Do you remember? You know, you know what I always think of. Not to derail us too much. I whenever I think of like legendary game sevens by random people. Do you know where I'm going with this? No. Kelly Olenek against oh, okay. the Wizards. Yeah, okay. That series where IT went crazy. I think in game six was right after his sister passed, right? And it then was. in OT, he hit that and won. It felt like it iced it and simultaneously fouled Markeith Morris out. I think that maybe was my peak moment as a Celtics fan. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> uh, You've but, missed some amazing moments since then, dude. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, that was an absolute blast, though. But now Grant Williams has his own legacy. And I, I think Grant will be a better player than Kelly. But uh, definitely see the the lack of shooting and why Gallo helps with that specifically in the regular season. But like you mentioned, you know, they have 12 uh, plus the two ways right now or 13 if you throw Vonley in there as well. What? Fair enough. Um, what other guys are out there? Like, I, I think of like Utah Wantanabe or like DJ Augustine. Like, is there really any Markeith Morris, I guess? Is there really any guys out there that like are home runs and, and obviously home run is just is contextual yeah and i was going to say it's very subjective to what you need and what they provide right does and for me it's more along the lines of what holes are left on celtic on the celtics roster so right now you've got al horford robert williams luke cornett those are your three big men Grant, and then you, if you want to throw Grant Williams into that into that mix, you can. If you want to throw Gallo into that mix, fair enough, go ahead. But what you need, what a lot of people forget to remember is, 
Al Horford was a primarily, well, almost exclusively a power forward last season. He played the four. So now your big man, and then Grant Williams is predominantly a four as well. And then Gallo's going to be three, four, five, depending on matchups. And he's going to get limited minutes. So you don't really include him like in your day-to-day kind of big man rotation. So all of a sudden, your big man rotation, your center is Robert Williams, then Luke Cornett. And what is Cornette? Like, do you really want Cornette playing? No, he's good. Don't get me wrong. I did a deep dive on this and I went through a lot of film. And, you know, he's a solid pick and roll defender. Um, very, very good at um, challenging shots vertically. Hardly fouls. Solid seven foot frame. I think he's seven two. Uh, really good rim protector. Can space the floor a little bit. And he's a very underrated passer as well. He's a viable option as a, as a backup big man. I would prefer him to be the third big man in that backup rotation, so which means you need to find somebody. Like a lot of the Celtics fans are like, well, you just slide out up to the five if Rob Williams is off the floor. I'm like, but when does Al get rest? Oh, if Rob Williams is injured, you're going to slide out to the five. That's cool. But then Luke Hornet's still your backup. Do you know what I mean? So when you go to the free agency market, you've got Dwight Howard. He's lost his, he doesn't have the same bounce anymore. Can't really score, but he can give you rebounding and rim protection. What Boston like to do is they like to put their five guarding the worst shooter on the floor on the weak side, you know, the weak side corner man. And um, they like their five to be a free safety. So when someone, when you need to challenge a shot, you can help off your man. And now you're meeting two big men at the rim. And that was like what made Robert Williams so good last year. So you could put Dwight Howard there. Demarcus Cousins is another option. I think he has a good. Uh, a good end to the regular season. Hassan Whiteside's another option. You know, so there's people there. Yeah, it's not the best. You don't option. want, uh, trust me. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't but know, what man. I'm getting at is like <laughs> there's talented veterans. And again, talent is subjective when I'm talking about a very defined role and minimum. For sure. That's more than I thought, though. Yeah, so there's options there, right? Then your other option is at the wing. You're going to want another wing, somebody to back up Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown. Um, if you if you look at the wing rotation, you lost out on like Neesmith was like a primary backup wing. He's gone. Um, you got rid of Langford during the regular season to acquire Derek White. I was heartbroken. I'm very triggered about it to this day. I don't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> so the wing depth's a little bit shaky. Uh, every anybody that follows me or knows me knows that I'm straight on that when it's wing. Right, I'm cool with Melo playing the four, but I don't mind sliding him down to the three. Give me Carmelo Anthony for a season on a veteran minimum. At the moment, they've got Justin Jackson on an Exhibit 10 deal. So he, he impressed during Summer League. That's an He was really good at Summer League, actually. Yeah. Um, then you've got – and don't forget, you've got a TPE as well. So you can start looking at trade targets with a 5.8 million TPE. So there's still holes to fill. Uh, and I think they need to fill definitely the big man and ideally the wing. But they do have until February to do so. That's interesting. Alex Lynn? 3.9 million? Yeah, so you got Alex Len, he's tall dude, he's a tall dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. I mean, he moves a lot better than most people his size. But does and... he do anything else good? Cuz from what I've gathered, like uh he's never really lived up to his early early career promise. For sure. I mean, yeah, definitely not number 4 pick hype or anything, but like I think that he's a solid backup center in the league um and, and i think is, Corn- he, is he luke cornet level because if he is then you might as well keep luke cornet cornet because you've already developed him from a two-way guy yeah and, and, and to be fair i'm not probably as uh educated on luke cornet is i mean as well, maybe i should Celtic, be. he got his nickname with the celtics what is the nickname the green cornet that is a great one yeah. that is a great one i feel like that's something you would have made up I'm upset that I didn't make it up. <laughs> Adam made it up. That's what we're going to stick with. That's yeah, no, I didn't. With. I didn't. I'm very humble when it comes to that. I wish I did. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I, I, again, don't know enough about Cornette, but in my mind, Alex Len is better. I think Len has showed some promise spacing the floor as well. Like, I, I mainly think that he's a really good rim protector who moves better than you would think. It's straight line, you know, like, I think you're you're definitely having to run him in a drop. Like I don't know if he's like this free safety sort of thing that you want wandering around because his movement side to side isn't phenomenal or anything. But I think running the floor, he moves decently. It's kind of intriguing. Uh, this is where I attempt 
to see, like I'm doing with every team, is there any way that Harrison Barnes or Rashawn Holmes is of interest to you? And I think the complication with Boston is salary matching, right? Yeah, so it's definitely salary matching. Boston are already nice and deep into that luxury tax. Uh, I mean, if we're being honest, it's like two, three seasons straight where Harrison Barnes has been connected to a Boston Celtics trade. Ideally, for me, I'd prefer Rashawn Holmes at this point because he fills a need a lot more than what Harrison Barnes does. And just before, and I know this for a fact because I saw it floating around and I'm pretty sure I aggregated a couple of them. But when the Celtics still had their massive TPE, their Evan Fournier TPE, there was a lot of people pushing for the Celtics to try and strike a deal to acquire Rashawn Holmes via that TPE. And evidently they let it expire because basically the Malcolm Brogdon trade was the TPE trade about needing to use the TPE. You got back a better player in Brogdon than what you ever would have got with the trade exception. Uh, but Matt, but Rashawn Holmes would be the ideal backup big for Robert Williams. Yeah, it makes sense. And like trying to make it work is just tough, at least for HB. Like in my mind, the only asset that is not like – I don't know. Like, I think the from Sacramento's point of view, the only guy I'm really looking at that I don't feel like I'm asking all too much, which you could tell me if I'm wrong, is is Grant Williams, which even then feels like a lot. You know, like, I just don't know what else uh, so Sacramento with, would be after. So the thing with Grant, the biggest thing with Grant is this contract extension that is due because he's got right. entering the final year of his rookie scale deal. And one of the big questions is what Grant exploded last season his third year in the league which is generally when you know later picks in the first round really blossom is that third year and now all of a sudden he's looking like somebody that could hit the levels of pj tucker in terms of like super fluid defense switchable one through four or maybe now i'd say like three through five legitimately switchable three through five can hit the corner three at a, a league leading clip or like top five percentile how much do you pay him? And right. that, that question there, in my opinion, also scares off teams from entering him into trade discussions because you know you're now need to gonna have to figure that out. You can end up overpaying him. You could end up lowballing him and losing him for nothing. I, I just think uh, the value, the, the uncertainties there, are quite like polarizing. Which is another reason why I think RJ Barrett isn't being included in um, many discussions with the Jazz for the same reason. Do you pay RJ Barrett like a star and give him a max rookie extension? Or are you not confident he'll ever live up to that? So you pay less. And now all of a sudden, do you really want that headache? Do you want to trade for that headache? No, fuck that. So you just don't do it. And and restricted always makes it complicated because like, maybe you don't want to pay RJ, but somebody, somebody in the league is probably going to give RJ a max. Yeah. Some desperate team, uh, which puts you in a weird situation. The only one that I could figure out, I guess, is like, and this can't be done until a couple months into the season because Gallo just signed. But like Gallinari and Grant for Rashawn Holmes. But then, like, the three years. question is, how much better is Rashawn Holmes than Montrez Harrell? That's true. Harrell is out, out there, huh? I, yeah. I do think that he's substantially better on defense. I, I think that Which he is, is a lot better, and and specifically switching. Like, I think Holmes is actually a really, really good switching big. And this is why, like, Boston made a lot of sense to me. I thought the Clippers made a lot of sense. Um, I I think that he's a lot better. But is he better enough to take him instead of Montrez? But while giving, like, you know, just for a backup role, you're not trading for Rashawn as a starting five anymore. Right. You're trading for him. And I say anymore because Boston's already got Rob, and that's where Rob's going to play. Not that Rashawn isn't capable of being a starting five, says. Um, but or do you go for a guy like Montrez? It's a free agent now. I'll premise this by saying Montrez is probably going to be one of the last big name free agents on the market. People, teams are going to wait to see what happens with his court case before extending any form of contract because you just don't know what you're bringing in. You're not going to want the PR if there's a if there's a sentence or some service that he needs to do. You know that's. Whatever the court decide with hit them and his look, that's not for us to speculate on. But I, I do think, that. Um, yeah. So he got caught with three pounds of vacuum sealed marijuana in Kentucky, where it's a felony. 
Gotcha. And, oh, um, yeah, yeah, it was enough for uh, intent to distribute. Three pans, vacuum sealed is enough to distribute, dude, especially when he lied about it at the traffic stuff. Um, or that's what the report said. I uh, see. So they asked him if he had marijuana and he handed them like a small amount out of his pocket. And they're like, they look around the car and they're like, what about the bricks in the back? Um, don't know where they came from, officer. Uh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Those um, weren't there. I have no clue. Yeah, dude, I'm building houses, ganja yeah. houses. Yeah. Um, but like until that gets resolved, you know, uh, they pushed his court date back because I've been following that because I, st- I do think he's a potential resolution to that big man issue in boston right he he would so, be that home run that i yeah. asked about you know so like um he had a court date in july they've pushed it back to august but they haven't set a date in august yet so like that's his first court date as well so then you know you're gonna have to go back for verdicts and sentence like you could be waiting until january until he's fully resolved and you can put if you can get montrez on a min for it for, for the season you have to do that and then you don't need to give up assets. Excuse me. Then you don't need to give up assets to go and require Rashawn Holmes. Yeah. No, that that definitely makes sense. I, I think like, you know, maybe if something were to happen to Horford or or Robert Williams, then like maybe this sort of deal makes sense. And again, like you'd have to get a gauge for what Grant's market is going to look like this yeah. off season, and, and that's kind of where the complication is there. Um, I wanted to ask you about. Or actually, I always, in each one of these, look for some random Kings connection, right? And I think the one for Boston is I just want to ask you about Aaron Neesmith. Because Neesmith was really popular at the time of the draft for the Celtics, um, who were sitting there at 11 and Tyrese Halliburton fell to them, so he kind of became the obvious no-brainer. But a lot of people were pushing for Aaron Neesmith. I was pretty low on him at the time. um, But he's, you know, I, I think... You know, I don't want to speak too much, actually, because I haven't seen him all too much. So I, I was curious to get your perspective on what you felt like you saw from Neesmith and how you feel about him as a player moving forward. That's fine. Once I've answered this question, I'd like to ask you a question. Let's do it. And if you don't know what this question is by now, then uh, there's an issue. So, because I've asked you every time since you made the statement. So, um, I can see you thinking on screen now. With Aaron Neesmith, my biggest thing was he was never a high-level shooter at high school. He, his numbers were average. He had one good season of like um, high-volume, high-conversion shooting. And that was the year when he got injured early in the season at Vanderbilt, the year before the, the, the season that led into the draft. And obviously, that rose his stock exponentially. And he, he came into the league dubbed as a sharpshooter. Now, watching him play throughout the last couple of years i think it's my uh my personal take was that he he wasn't a shooter at all he was a high motor slashing wing that could defend his ass off and he could defend because i felt like at the time of the draft he was more of like a hypothetical defender with this no league. so i mean his defense was 90 percent effort do you know what i mean and, and yeah. he made mistakes but his recoveries were great um, he, his contests at the rim, he got so many hustle chase down blocks and all, like, like rotational blocks and shot adjustments. He was that type of guy that was just a pain to def- to play against, right? Because you'll shake him off. You'll I think just, he's. You'll I think just remember your question. You. And uh, then all of a sudden, he, he he's back in the play and he's affecting your shot. So he could defend his ass off from a hustle and effort standpoint, uh, and he has the the size and athleticism to develop into a very reliable defender. Uh, His three-point stroke was never consistent. So I've always, I I view him similar, like as a lower version, obviously I don't, like a a poor man's Jalen Brown in terms of raw athleticism, very good at attacking closeouts, great when pressure in the rim, has all the attributes needed to be an above average perimeter defender, but his three-point shooting is a little bit sus. The only downside is for Neesmith. He came into the league dubbed as a three-point shooter. And the worst thing he ever did in his opening interview, they said, what can you bring to the Celtics? And he was like, I'm an absolute sniper. No, dude. No, dude. I don't know what game you're playing, but you ain't a sniper. That's so wild to hear because, yeah, I mean, that's still how I thought of him. Uh, That's very interesting. If you had to say, and it's still early, you think he's a starter eventually? 
And what type of team? Fair enough. Like, a team that's, you know, bottom of the playoffs. If he gets the I, I think the you saying what type of team probably answers the question. No, because, like, you know, he's in Indiana now. He's going to get a lot more opportunities to play. What you've got to remember as well that could prove me wrong is he's been behind Tatum and Brown. His minutes have been – he's never had a consistent run in the team. It's always been five minutes here, ten minutes here. Oh, you'll get a stretch of six games where you're going to play 12 minutes, but now you're going to go to the next seven games. You're not going to play at all. It's all DMPCDs. So there's no consistency there. Yeah, going over to Indiana, playing under Carlisle, along with a pass-first guard like your boy Tyrese Halliburton, there's an opportunity there for him to really figure figure that shit out, right? And this is the year to do it. So I'd say there's a 50-50 chance he can ever become a starter, and the other 50% chances is a starter in Europe. Fair, fair enough, yeah. I think it's optimistic, though, that, like, like you said, the maybe thing he hasn't been great at is what in years prior he was really viewed as as a high caliber shooter so yeah maybe but that like, kind of, the numbers were never there to back that up they they were kind of just that outlier right yeah um did you hear me laugh in the middle of your thing by the way and i remember I what your question is so my question is <laughs> when when peyton pritchard got drafted your response was wasn't even on my board he's gonna be <laughs> not gonna be in the league he sucks he's a, a absolute terrible draft selection by danny Ainge. You, you were livid and uh, I'd like to know how you feel about Peyton Pritchard now. I feel like he's uh, pretty good, to be honest. I think he's a solid backup point guard, and I think it says a lot that I did not like Peyton Pritchard, and I liked Robert Woodard and Jemias Ramsey, who can't even find G League teams. So everyone listening, the moral of the story <laughs> is when Brendan does draft content, go and get some salt and keep taking pinches of it because Brendan... <laughs> now, to be fair, that was your first year doing draft like draft evaluations and that it's not an exact science by any stretch. S- some things hit and some don't, you know. Yeah. I had Bane over Neesmith for what it's worth. So Bane you, looks pretty uh... damn good right now. Is that Does that one still hurt, by the way? The Kings and Celtics have one similarity in that draft. And it's that they both traded away, like, solid late picks. Yeah, so, I mean, you could say it hurts, but I'd be saying it from Game 6 of the NBA Finals. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that is a great great answer. Um, Okay, one of the other things I want to ask you about that I'm really curious and I point to a lot is this, like, learning curve that seemed to take place or, like, adjustment period of moving on to a new coach that Boston dealt with last year. Um, I always mess up his first name. And, like, because I mess it up all the time, I never trust myself. Emei Udoka. So the way to remember it is, and I made this dad joke at the start of the season, and I I genuinely thought people were going to be tweeting it because I thought it was gold. (laughs) And it just, no one gave a shit. But uh, I was like, the way I remembered his name was, he may be good, he may be bad. I love it. I love it. (laughs) uh, I thought that was genius. And apparently nobody else got on that he may train. But um, (laughs) yeah, he may Udoka. He may be good, he may be bad. For the whole adjustment period that Boston took place when they were moving on from Brad Stevens to he may Udoka, like Sacramento, I think... I think it's normal to have this adjustment period that is a pretty tough transition at the beginning, especially when you go from like drastically different, I think leadership styles, maybe even further than just like coaching differences, which I know there were both, but I think the leadership styles make a substantial difference. And I think that's something that Sacramento can relate to a lot here. Um, Just do you think that, is there anything that you can identify as what was the, turning points or what was necessary for them to finally like it all to click outside of just whooping sacramento's ass by 50 points now they went on a west coast road trip and they played like um i can't remember. i know that the end of the road trip ended with lakers clippers or clippers lakers right and it was i think dallas was in that road trip i think they beat it because it was when they played sacramento so they beat you guys and then they lost their next three or four games in a row and they were all ass whoopings like it wasn't like tucked tight contested like they got their asses kicked and they came home and then from what the reports followed because there's like been a big inquisition into this by like you know jay king who wrote for the athletic kind of done this huge article it's really well done um where rimei basically had everyone in the uh 
in a film session for like an entire day and tore strips off of dudes. And it was the first time they saw the true version of Imeo Doka, right? So he's stopping plays like, yo, you missed this. This was shit. Like really going off on dudes. And uh, that was when things started to turn around. People started to be ha- hold. He was started holding guys accountable. They started holding each other accountable. And that the biggest turnaround for me was very shortly after that was when they moved Robert Williams into that free safety role. And all of a sudden, Boston's top 10 defense became the best defense in the NBA by quite a considerable margin that and that was because you were allowing more time for rub to roam around you were giving grant williams more responsibility al Horford more responsibility and you were really leaning into the fact that yeah we want to be a great defensive unit but we also have six or seven ridiculously good defensive pieces that we should be utilizing more and once they did that everything clicked and their offense was trash for a large portion but no one could score on them Led to yeah. some low-scoring games, and sometimes you were just like, "Oh my god!" Like no one scored in six minutes. <laughs> I but, cannot relate. Cannot relate at all. Well, you can. So, it's just no one on the Kings have scored in six minutes. You need to watch yourself. You need to watch yourself. <laughs> um, it's true. That's that's <laughs> interesting. I wouldn't have known that it was also a switch in kind of game plan and the way that they were going about things. I I kind of from my point of view, outsider, however many miles away, thought that it was just getting used to that style, and then once it all clicked with the players, that it worked. But, Shane, it was, it's kind of like got to be both, right? The players, you got to meet in the middle, right? The players got to figure out how to adjust to this style, and the coach has to take time to figure out through trial and error, because as much as planning and scheming and, um, you know, yeah, pl- game planning that you do throughout the offseason. You don't know what actually is and isn't going to work with the guys you have until you get out there. So, like, do you think that most new coaches are going to have this sort of adjustment period? I don't know. I mean, most new coaches don't walk into a team being led by an all-NBA wing uh, and a Jalen Brown, who, you know, I like to call him an all-star, but he's had one in his career, so he's not really an all-star. He's an all or maybe a star. But he's not an all-star. Um, sorry, Jalen. Love you. Um, but yeah, I think the adjustment period was on both sides, right? This, If you look at the, the Celtics, this team developed and came through the Brad Stevens system of basketball. And the, the difference between Udoka and Stevens is so stark. And the way I like to explain it is Brad Stevens liked his basketball to be very technical, very like... um. I like to call it ballet basketball. Do you know what I mean? Everything's very technical. There's some raz, like there's some pizzazz to it. Do you know what I mean? Imo Doka's like, nah, bro. I want that Miley Cyrus basketball. I want to come in like a wrecking ball, get physical and in everyone's face right here, right now. And uh, that and that took some adjusting because now Tatum's more of a banger. He he he. Instead of like Euro stepping away from context, he's bouncing into guys. He's playing, and the Celtics have developed a bit of a mean streak to them. But that, like, for a lot of these dudes that have been in the NBA and only ever known Brad Stevens' way of playing, I think it took a while to adjust to that mentality, to embrace that new style of basketball. Uh, so, yeah, I hope you think- my analogies helped. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the first time Miley Cyrus's name has ever been mentioned on the Kings Post podcast. Um, I came uh, in like a wreck. Yeah. You can keep going if you want. Now you're all right. I can't hit that one. <laughs> um, was it a harder adjustment from what you could tell for some players rather than others? Because I, I think, like, I mean, there was times at the beginning of the year where it was like, shit, is Udoka going to last till the end of the year? Like, Oh, did I were, hate Udoka? Yeah, they, they, and the way that the players were publicly like bashing each other and the coaching, yeah. I was like, "What is happening?" So what was happening was the <sighs> Udoka system was very much it, it, at the beginning. It seemed rudimentary, right? So it was very much penetrate, drive, kick, penetrate, drive, kick, and they were generating a ton of open looks, but no one was hitting them. And you know, there was questions like. Man, is it the ball? You know, it's that first year with the Wilson ball. Are people struggling to adopt? Like, that's how bad it got, right? We were down that bad. And yeah, uh, yeah we, we had the same. Yeah, we had some of yeah. the same. <laughs> <laughs> we were down bad, dude. And uh, over time, like, you know, people started to make their shots. Udoka started to implement more and more sets. Um, 
and things started to get good. But there was definitely a struggle. I think Jay, I think Jalen, sorry, Jason Tatum struggled quite heavily, like because a lot more was being asked of him this year as a creator as well as a scorer. He was also being asked to to focus more and get into the rim, not settle for those like if you beat a closeout, don't settle for the midi. I want you to get to the rim. I want you to punish dudes. I want you to I want you to really mess guys up. You know what I mean? Drop that shoulder into it. I loved it. Um, that's I grew up on that style of basketball. I want to see that more. Uh, but I think that was a big adjustment for Tatum. I think it was a big adjustment for guys like uh, like Rob Williams as well, first year as a starting big man. Uh, so there was adjustments across the board, but I think the person that needed to make the biggest adjustment was actually Udoka because I think he came in with a vision, executed the vision, but needed to be amenable to be, like making slight alterations to what that vision eventually would look like. That makes sense. And it worries me a little bit from the King's point of view, and I've worried about this for a little while, that like when if the Kings have a slow start and then it clicks – similarly to Boston, clicking for Sacramento is not going to be the same as clicking was for Boston. You know what I mean? Where they're yeah, the that, best I mean, team in the league for since, what was it, January, December type thing. Like, yeah, I, I different, worry that yeah. if Sacramento gets too, off to a slow start, that it's like, sure, we can feel really good going into next year, that it's all figured out, but they're not going to make the postseason yet again. So the difference is, what I'd say is the Celtics are a lot further in their rebuilding, like, their, their like, cycle their 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 lifespan do you know what i mean you, i view every roster as like a, a life cycle so the kings are a few years behind in that life cycle so when the celtics were clicking two or three years ago it didn't necessarily mean a deep postseason run sometimes it happened but it did it, that wasn't what it meant now you guys have obviously you've got sabonis you've got the Aaron fox Keegan Murray is going to get at least seven 55-point games this season. Obviously, I'm being facetious, but I think he's going to be exceptional. Um, I love that word, by the way, exceptional. Uh, so I, I think that you guys have got a good chance of making the playoffs this year. You're an outside shot. Yeah. Let's be fair. But all that matters this year is you do enough to keep Sabonis happy and Keegan Murray develops at a rapid rate. If you can do those things and find a way to, find, to, to bring... Tyrese home, then everything. <laughs> I agree, and, and I think it's always interesting to get like an outsider point of view. And I think that at one point I was this outsider and still am to an extent. But it's so easy, like with just the playoff drought is talked about so much. Let me see how far away I am. I want to see how much of an outsider. I am. <laughs> Sixteen years now that they haven't made the postseason, it's hard not to care about the results primarily. Uh, but, you know, we're hearing, like, Jordy Fernandez, lead assistant, is saying all the time, we heard this throughout Summer League, you can see the YouTube series, the run that the Kings have been putting out. You can hear him talking about it there as well. It's all about process for the coaching staff rather than results, which is for sure the smart way to go. And he says, you know, the wins will come if we have the right process, which makes a lot of sense. I worry that if the results don't come with the correct process this season – that there's overreactions because that's what we've seen in years prior. Um, but I, yeah, from an outsider point of view, I, I totally see why it, it's smart that like, Hey, we didn't make the postseason this year, but they did end the year really well. They have an identity now, which didn't exist before they have promising young pieces and still a, a path on how they get better. Like, I guess that could still be a positive season a successful season i just don't know how much of the fan base and honestly even ownership would be able to label it a successful season because if if you're not willing to take the baby steps to improvements then you're always going to go in that same circle of object like you know let me tell you 16 years 16 years my guys so that's kind of where they're and you know i think one of the main things for me is that like the front office bonnie mcnair west wilcox have one year left and more often than not, guys would get extended right now. It's like if they don't make the postseason, and even if the process looks good and it seems like things are clicking at the end, do those guys come back? Does the direction change once again? So I, I have some worries there, even though I do think that they are headed um, in the right direction here. Did you figure out just how far? I did. I've been waiting to say it because I was impressed. 
5,176 miles from my airport, from where I am to Sacramento Airport. Not far. It's around the corner, bro. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know which way around the globe. It doesn't matter, does it? I don't know. It's It's probably right about the middle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So the way it works with the curvature of the Earth is from here, whenever I go to the West Coast, it's from here, you fly out from England, you fly over Ireland, then you hit the Atlantic Ocean. You don't see ground again until you go to Greenland. Oh, shit. I wouldn't have even thought of taking this way. That makes and, sense. And then you go over Greenland. Then you <laughs> I go... forgot you can't only go left and right. There's other directions, you know? Yeah, so then you go over <laughs> Greenland. I think you pass Denmark at some point as well, but it's so little, you barely a blip on it. And then you you end up over Canada, like Hudson Bay and stuff in Canada. Then you go right across Canada back onto the, the Pacific Ocean and then down. That's gotcha. kind of the way it works. Wow. The, I'd never the flight back's that. a lot different. Yeah. The flight back's like straight line across America, straight over the Atlantic, straight into London. That's what I would have thought yeah uh, but flight paths and stuff right so you have to go with the curvature so yeah, yeah. so it's far man 5176 miles interesting well we're gonna make that trip at some point here final questions i have for you adam um and i always throw these people away i know for eastern conference people this is a little bit more difficult but just getting your opinion outsider opinion on on the kings they were and- there you go. That, that is a very good start. Royal purple. We're on to something here. What do you think of the Fox and Sabonis pairing? How how good do you think they can be as a duo? And, and kind of how do you think that they will? Do you think that that's a solid pairing? So I'm a lot more comfortable talking about DeMontis than I am with Fox, obviously, because I saw DeMontis more frequently. I think they can be good. I'm, I'm not 100% confident enough in my like ability to talk about the Aaron Fox like cohesively to have a fair opinion. But I'd say like, you know, that duo if you can surround them with some floor spacers and a nice um a supplementary big man for when Sabonis comes off the floor that can rim run, which you have in Rashawn Rashawn. I'd say they're like a you know, like a top twelve duo, probably. Do you have any you have any strong thoughts on like Sabonis playing the four, possibly? As like somebody that was just because Horford, I, I thought the whole issue in Philly was that he was playing the four, but clearly not. No, so I think with with Sabonis, he struggled doing that alongside Miles um, Turner. Turner, right? And I th- and the, the biggest issue there is Turner was a floor spacing five, dude. Sabonis got all of his post touches he needed, like you know, and you could send, you could run dive set. So a dive set is like if you've got. Miles Turner down on the dunk on the dunker spot and Sabonis at the top as Sabonis rot, like rot, cut off ball towards the rim. Turner could come up, so it kind of works like a pendulum, and so you could always keep that continuity of having one big man above the perimeter. And if, if Sabonis couldn't make it work there, what I don't know what type of big he could he would need to play alongside with to make it work because Turner seemed like a really good fit because of the floor spacing that he could always step outside of the perimeter to allow Sabonis to do what he needed to do. Totally. That makes a lot of sense. I've never been a fan of the Sabonis Holmes pairing either, especially like, I don't know how you do that with Fox on the floor as well, especially like that just sounds Fox like horrendous isn't spacing. Shooter, right? No, it, it sounds like horrendous spacing. And like, I, I get why try it. Sure. Because at some point it's like, maybe just put your five best guys out there and see if it works. That's what Boston like, did. You could try it. I don't. I would guess that it doesn't work, to be honest. But it doesn't hurt to try and, and just kind of see. Um, last thing for you. This is my closing question for everyone. Putting you on the spot. Will the Kings end their 16-year playoff drought this season and playoffs? So play-in does not count. They have to win the play-in. The West no. is stacked. Yeah, no. I I just don't think the depth's there right now. And I, I think a lot of people a lot of people put so much onus on having star players and the importance of having a star. When in reality, the depth 
is just as, if not more important. And I just don't think the depth's there for Sacramento right now. You don't believe in Matthew Delavadova? Is that what you're telling me, Adam? I'm a big fan of Matthew Delavadova <laughs> in terms of the fact that he doesn't play for my team. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, okay, I think that is it. Final thoughts. I guess I meant to mention Jeremy Lamb is an interesting guy for one of your guys' final spots. I don't know why he hasn't been picked up at all. I do not understand that. I don't think Jeremy Lamb's phenomenal, but I definitely think he's an NBA player. He's been silent. Anyone could say it's the silence of the lamb. <laughs> God damn it, Adam. God damn it. <laughs> that was a great one. It was really quick, too. It was really quick. Um, and I hope that Justin Jassett makes the team. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how Kings fans feel about Justin Jackson. I, I think it's probably a little bit polarizing, um, but I thought he was really solid in Summer League and just a 3 and D guy I, I think makes a, a lot of sense. I'd be interested to see him kind of get a little bit of an opportunity. But any final thoughts on your side, Adam? Y'all are lucky you get to listen to Brendan every week. You're too kind. You're too kind. Um, I think that's all I got here, man. So anybody that is not already definitely follow adam on twitter at adam taylor nba even if you guys don't care about the celtics he is an amazing basketball mind that is doing a stupid amount of work on the entire league and just great x's and o's teaching me shit all the time uh work at celtics blog heavy and house of bounce as well and if you want pure x's and o's coverage or like 80 percent x's and o's coverage head over to instagram there you go. Which is what? What's your handle there? At Adam Taylor NBA. That's what I thought. Just wanted to make sure. Got it. Um, and there is also plenty of great Kings coverage for myself and all the other guys and gals at the Kings Herald. So take a look at that. And their Patreon to support local independent Kings coverage. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Kings Pulse podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And hear from me again in the next couple of days. You do not subscribe anymore. You follow. So please follow, rate, and review. Do that. <laughs>